<laughs> Gotta love the bass man. Patrick and Jane, we appreciate your ministry and time together as we get together here and uh, enjoy that. Prepare our hearts. We've gathered to worship the living God. I've said Psalm 100 responsibly, so let us read responsibly our call to worship this morning. Psalm 100. It says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Let us stand and sing together our next hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King.
Amen, and be seated if you would, please. Again, thankful to guest musician Patrick McGeehan, McGeehan, a senior at Hope College, um, and Jane on organ and piano as they've played and ministered in that way. I'm really thankful for the opportunity we have in celebration to welcome and encourage a variety of musicians and see God's glory in a number of ways. Um, with that regard, greetings. Uh, those of you who are here on site, we gather today against all odds. When I first moved here, people told me there were two seasons in Michigan, winter and construction. And this Sunday at Hardawike, we get to celebrate both on one day. Um, but eastbound traffic on Lakewood apparently will be open, but it's going to change week to week for the next month or two and then move on down the way. They're repaving and widening and water and sewer and all sorts of things. The 160... Um, entrance will be available at all times. So we welcome those of you on, online as well. I would say to the Kampan family in Honduras, your grandpa is doing great. He made it safe for your great grandma to get here this morning. So we're working together from here and to the utter ends of the earth and all that God has for us. It's good to be uh, together. A couple of uh, quick announcements. Um, Sad to bring news of the passing of Tina Niehoff in our congregation. Uh, she passed away on Friday. The funeral and uh, visitation will be on Tuesday. Tina was a particular personality in that she was born in the other Holland, um, in Europe, the Netherlands. And I remember her telling me stories of Nazis kicking in her parents' door to try to find people that they were hiding. And that's part of our heritage. Uh, part of the call of the gospel is to resist evil. And I'm thankful that she was a living witness to that and now uh, in our memory. Also, it's a good season for lots of basketball, but not just Hope and the women's team that were national champions or March Madness. But I hope you saw the story of uh, Zealand East Junior, Jules Hoagland, a blind athlete who scored a point uh, from the free throw. Fascinating thing as they tap right on the backboard and navigating with that, I'm thinking she's doing better than I could. And it's just marvelous to see people encourage us to live past what the world would say is our limits, but into all that God has called us for. Now, we'll talk about Wednesday night, the Pinewood Derby. This is a great all heart awake kind of event. Um, it's just this glorious chaos. Uh, make sure you have opportunity to be a part of that. And in my preparation and thoughtful research about this Sunday, I want you to know that if we were in Luxembourg, because this is the fourth Sunday of Lent, we would call this Bretzel Sonntag, which means roughly translated Pretzel Sunday. Apparently, the fourth Sunday in Lent in Luxembourg is all about pretzels. And I know a great way to enjoy pretzels. Uh, so enjoy Pretzel Sunday. Who would have known? Um, our faith, boy, that went over like a lead balloon, did I? <laughs> Folks, I'm trying. <laughs> How about you online? Was that any better there? Um, anyhow, we've gathered. And again, I said last week, and I think perhaps we need to say this from time to time, because God is on the throne, 
we don't have to create our own security, our own hope. We can face difficult times, face joyful times, and live together under His sovereign grace. So, let's enjoy the morning, uh, enjoy God, even as we pray and see a number of the needs later on in our prayer time. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27. I like to take one of these each month and focus on a particular truth. The question for today, what do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean ears, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Let us sing a Lent-focused hymn, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded.
Amen. Have a seat if you would please. As we prepare to pray, again, one of the things I'm very aware of is just the sheer number of needs and things to lift up. I won't touch each one of them, even though I've got them listed in part of my own regular uh, prayer cycle. I saw eight families that over the course of the past several months are facing grief and loss, uh, nine uh, folks across Hardaway with particular pressing medical needs, tests or surgery or recovery. So again, trusting the Holy Spirit and trusting the people of God, I'm going to give some headings and silence and give you opportunity to pray for those needs in those categories uh, that you know of. Uh, what's powerful in this moment, more than our prayer, is our God. And as God's people pray to God, in light of the needs and opportunities that we see, that's where the power is. So pursue God with me as we pray together. Oh Lord, our God and Father, thank you that you have called us into the throne room of your grace, that because of what Jesus did at the cross, we enter in, not simply to a seat of judgment, to a place of relationship, because by your grace, we have been adopted through faith as deeply loved children of yours. And so, Abba, Father, we come to you and we lift to you the pressing concerns of our heart and life in this moment. Each week we pray for Heart Awake, the ministry, the larger portion that you've made us a part of. And so we pray that you would guide this ministry in all its different facets, give us insight, kindness. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for the emerging uh, vision and call you're giving to our hearts to pursue you and to make the gospel known. We pray for our leadership, our council, our staff, our volunteer leaders, and indeed each person who you have drawn to be part of Heart Awake. I pray specifically for um, Pastor Aaron as he preaches today in Watershed, our sister congregation. Be with them in decisions uh, they're making they're, uh, right now in extending ministry. We pray for Pastor JB in the ministry at Fusion. I thank you that Pastor Florencio will stand right where I do in a few hours and proclaim the message of your grace in Spanish. <laughs> so extend and guide our ministry that Jesus would be known. Father, as a portion of Heart Awake, the one we call celebration. We thank you that you've bound us together in love. Sometimes life is filled with such storms it feels like we're lashing ourselves to one another. Thank you that you hold us in this. Father, we pray for those who are grieving, lost. There's been many over the past months. We pray specifically for the Nehoff family, for uh, daughter Marge and son Ike and daughter-in-law Anne. But for all those who grieve, we join with them and pray your grace and support. And Father, we see as well uh, various medical needs, whether chemo treatment or comfort care, whether tests or recovery and physical therapy. We thank you that you have their lives in your hand and we pray your grace, a healing grace. Use those doctors and nurses or uh, caregivers 
as extensions of your love and hand. We pray for those with medical needs. And Father, we thank you that you've placed us, first of all, as your children, citizens of the great kingdom, but you've placed us in this time and location. And so each week we pray for those in authority over us. We pray for the state of Michigan in our regular cycle this week. We pray for Governor Gretchen Whitmer, for Dana Nessel and Jocelyn Benson. We pray for our state house representatives, Mary Whitford and Jim Lilly and Bradley Slay and State Senator Roger Victory. We pray for the state of Michigan that you would uh, keep the economy strong. We pray that all the uh, work of government would be just and fruitful and beneficial. We pray for jobs, Father, and for a strong economy that would make provision for stability and fruitfulness for all citizens. Father, I would pray for the ongoing blessing of the rule of law, and not just law, but just law, as you are the just lawgiver. Help that to begin with self-rule, as in each of our hearts we submit to your call. Help us to be responsible and committed to community and those beyond uh, the doors of this place. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is to the utter ends of the earth, and that from the very beginning it was your heart and purpose for every tribe and tongue and nation. And so we pray very specifically for the Ukraine people. We pray your mercy in the midst of this Russian invasion of Ukraine. We pray for the citizens of Russia, that their hearts would be turned that Vladimir Putin would be interrupted and changed. We prayed through those resources last week, and I continue in that voice and that spirit to pray for uh, not just peace, but a just peace, that your mercy would reign in power. And Father, we know, though we see those needs pressing, we know there's more around the, the planet. We pray for the genocide of the Uyghurs and the growing persecution of believers in China. We pray for the work of missionaries from Hardawike and otherwise, some uh, working in creative access countries, some openly. We pray that in all things they may live the power of your gospel and the witness to Jesus and his resurrection. Lord Jesus, we pray, move quickly and powerfully. We pray with both prophets, Isaiah and Micah, who saw a similar vision. I'll read from Isaiah chapter 2. And God shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Father, we pray for the establishing of your kingdom and the wholeness, the shalom that Jesus died to establish. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Father, I pray that as we pray together, your spirit might move across the planet with the goodness of your promises. Let's pray together as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Thank you. Um, we're preaching through the book of Exodus, really the journey from Egypt uh, right up to the promised land. And we're calling this series enough because one of the things we've seen through the course of these pivotal events is that the people of God in some way come to a moment where they are not enough, but they continue to discover fresh and new day by day that Jesus is, that the Lord who reveals himself at the burning bush to Moses, the Lord is enough. And so this morning, we'll be looking at the text from Exodus 19 through Exodus 32. Now, I'm just going to read a portion of that. Tough crowd again. We'll start in Exodus 19, which is God's covenant promise. Then you'll see out of those promises comes the Ten Commandments and a number of um, expositions on that for right worship. And then finally, something breaks out in power among the people in 32, and we'll look at that. So we're going to hit the ends and move through uh, quickly that legislation. Hear the Word of God, beginning at Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day... They came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Uh, Moses does that. He proceeds from there to um, go up on the mountain. And I'll just give you a brief overview. He touches, brings back to them the Ten Commandments. Then they establish the tabernacle for right worship. And then we pick up uh, verses 7 and 8. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. Remember that statement. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. I'm sorry, I've been a little confused. That was the first part in Exodus 19. And now we fast forward. The nation of Israel prepares to meet the Lord. They get the Ten Commandments. They get the tabernacle and all the things that follow that. One of my favorite passages in Ezekiel, uh, in Exodus is chapter 31 where Bezaliel gifted of the Holy Spirit. It's really the first place you see gifts of the Spirit functioning in the Scripture. He has the gift of craftsmanship, and he helps build the tabernacle. But we pick up now at verse chapter 32. 
when the people saw that Moses was so long in the mountain, so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Let's pray. O Lord, our God and Father, we thank you that you know our weakness and our brokenness. And so you and your grace have pursued us. You entered in and made yourself known to Moses and to Israel and through them to us. But then in the fulcrum event of history, you yourself took on human form. You took our brokenness to the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, and in victory rose from the dead. And so now we live by your grace in the victory of the cross rather than the brokenness of our efforts. Thank you that you've overseen the recording of these events, events, whether centuries ago with Moses or centuries ago with Paul. And across the centuries, even yet, you've now brought them to us that we might read, study, consider, and Holy Spirit, that you would take, as it were, the ink from the page and make it life to us. Shape us to see and to understand the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ ever so clear. These things we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Follow the storyline in Exodus. I'll give you the highlights. We've read them. Chapter 19 is the arrival at Sinai. They're now out of Egypt. And it says very clearly, it's an interesting time note. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, it's as if the writer, Moses in my understanding, wants to make sure we're aware there was the crossing of the Red Sea and three months later to that very day, these events begin. They're camped at the desert of Sinai. They're in a desert right at the foot of the mountain. And God very briefly gives uh, Moses what he is to say to the people in this pivotal month, time. First of all, he wants to make clear that they've been together for three months. Keep this in your mind. From the crossing of the Red Sea, the deliverance from Egypt, to standing at the mountain where we know they'll get the Ten Commandments. Three months. You can grasp that time. We've all lived it. So for three months, this is what you are to say to them. I carried you and I brought you. It's a marvelous statement here. You yourselves have seen, God instructs Moses to say, as if to remind them, this is not just an inspiring story. It's not some idea or tradition. You lived through this. You have seen, you have experienced. And what they experienced was what God did to Egypt and how he himself carried his people on eagle's wings and brought them to himself. 
But it's interesting what follows next to me. I want to look at verse 5. It's written, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. God is Lord of all. He, through Jesus, will redeem every tribe and tongue and nation. But out of them, he had a purpose that he wanted to fulfill. And we see this conditional clause, if you obey me fully, then you will be my treasured possession. Now, we know about conditional clauses, don't we? If you clean your room, then we will go to the playground. Four hours later, if the room is still unclean, what happens? You don't go to the playground. There's an instructional moment. There's a performative moment. Perhaps you've heard other conditional clauses. If you get an A on your report card, then you will get a dollar. Or with inflation, is it going about five? What is it these days? I see every kid in the house looking up to their parents and say, this is an idea we should explore. But you understand conditional clauses, don't you? Our world is filled with them. And this is what we have. It's very clear. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. Well, the question follows. How did Israel do? Did they clean up their room? Or did they get the A? Have they met the conditions that would make them eligible for the benefits? Before we answer that question, I want to look at the very next chapter, the Ten Commandments. I like to think of the Ten Commandments as obedience defined. What would it look like to live out as a treasured possession of God? And God gives them, as it were, the Ten Commandments, ten boundary markers, ten boundary stones so that they know what not to cross and how to live. And you've seen them, you've studied them, you've read them. Number one, no other God. Number two, no idols. One of my favorites these days. Number four, take care of mom and dad. Number nine, don't gossip. And number 10, ignore TV commercials. Oh, I understand that what he put in the stone was thou shalt not covet. But you understand that TV commercials are designed to make you break the 10th commandment. So let's just get to the point. 10 boundary markers, the 10 commandments. And don't think these are a past idea or the 10 suggestions. Remember what Jesus does with the Ten Commandments. The first thing he does is affirm them. Not a jot or tittle of the law will pass away. I didn't come to overthrow it. He said, I came to fulfill it. It stands. Indeed, Jesus develops the Ten Commandments. Do you remember Matthew 6? He takes on commandment number 6 in Matthew chapter 5. Thou shalt not murder. He says this in chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
they have coming back to mind the Ten Commandments. Commandment number six, they knew it. Yes, we've heard that said. But listen to Jesus, verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anger counts. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, thou shalt not murder. Jesus extends it to the heart condition of murder, of anger, because out of anger will flow. We're busy trying to uh, wash that away. We'll read Paul in Ephesians. In your anger, do not sin. But we'll avoid the very next sentence which says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So maybe there is a loophole. You can be angry till the sun goes down. If you've still got it the next morning, you're guilty of violating the sixth commandment. Friends, if the Ten Commandments are the boundary markers, if Jesus develops and deepens them, if they represent obedience defined for this conditional clause, then the question is, how did they do? Forward ahead to Exodus 32, and we see the story of the golden calf. When the people saw Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, can you hear the fear that was driving them? They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods, gods who will go before us from here. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron does that. He creates something to worship. He's making an idol. Now, you want to know something that's stunning? about this moment, it's about three months after Sinai. So get this in your mind. Out of Egypt, slavery left behind three months to get to Sinai. At Sinai, over the next days and weeks, you get the 10 commandments, the 10 boundary markers for living in obedience. Within three months later, you're making idols out of fear. Three plus three equals about six months. From freedom to idol worship. And if you'll read carefully here, you see they're, they're dealing with their inner fears. Who, where's Moses? Oh, he got us here, but we, I don't see him anymore. Notice they're rewriting their history. Not that we've lived through any of that in the past, 30 minutes, rewriting their history. They've forgotten the mighty acts of the Lord. They've forgotten the promises. And out of that, they come to a new focus for worship. They want to worship things that they control, that they make, that they define. Forget who God is. I'll define for myself. Here's the gold. Make what I will worship. I'll trust what I can create more than I will trust a God who's called me, who's done things, who's spoken things. I want gods that will work for our benefit and place them in power, place me in power. So back to the question, how did Israel do? Did they meet the conditions that would make them eligible for the benefits? 
Within three months, they had violated the first commandment and the second commandment. They had built the tabernacle and begun to worship idols within three months. This is not a story of of Israel's great success. It's a story of Israel's epic failure. And we don't have time to touch all of them, but I, I want you to get this sense. Three months, clear violations, clear rewriting of history, clear forgetting of all that God had done. But it continues. There becomes an ongoing pattern of failure. Moses in Numbers 22, verse 8, And I'll just read verse 12 out of that larger passage. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I gave him. Moses fails and doesn't enter in till centuries later with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we'll move on. How about the greatest of their kings, David, several centuries later? What kind of... um, leader was David. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was a man marked by sin. Do you remember him committing murder and adultery around Bathsheba and her husband Uriah? Those are the very two sins, murder and adultery, that Jesus deals with in the Beatitudes and says, they're a matter of the heart. Have you ever lusted after a woman? Have you ever been angry in your heart? People would have thought of the sin of David. Those commandments, Jesus points to them from the Sermon on the Mount, and he shows how David himself was an epic failure. He was a man of violence. David tolerated sexual abuse in his family. Read 2 Samuel 13. It's a tragic moment. The rape of Tamar by her half-brother, Amon. And David does nothing about it. And out of that flows the rebellion of Absalom, death, destruction, pain in his family. Whatever you say about David, in terms of the if-then, he's an epic failure at the covenant of obedience. Well, there's a glimmer of gospel of God's grace in David that I want to point to here. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 62. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. See, if David had said, truly my soul finds rest in God, my salvation comes from my obedience and covenant security, we'd have a different thing. David knew of his shortcomings, but he trusted in his salvation in the living God. There's the gospel. Centuries before Christ. David never trusted in his own obedience. He always found his hope in what God would do, even in light of his shortcoming. Friends, is it good news that even your brokenness, even your shortcoming, even your failures will not prevent God's love for you? That's because of who God is. He writes, truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I'll never be shaken. The epic failures continue right into the New Testament. Do you remember a guy, Peter? He breaks number nine of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't tell the truth when questioned about knowing Jesus. And not just once, but three times. And not just by accident. Jesus tells him 
predicts it. He tells them what will happen. Friends, look at this timeline of epic failure. From miraculous rescue to giving of the law, three months, idols, centuries, ongoing for a number of centuries until finally, finally there is one who keeps the law. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus. God himself will take on human form. And it says in Hebrews 4.15 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize us with us. No, he's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Finally, centuries later, we can look back to Exodus 19 and say, finally, there's someone who's met the if-then promise. If you fully obey, that person is not physically sitting in this room. None of us meet that criteria. But there is one. His name is Jesus. And it's, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 says that he has become our great high priest. He is the one who's able to represent us in matters related to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So Israel's epic failure is a part of life on this planet until one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he himself turns it into a story of the Lord's epic grace. Do you see the difference? Jesus, by grace, offers us the gift of adoption, that status in Christ, his grace, our faith, a new identity, a new way of living. We live in grace. You see, here's the gospel in Exodus 19. I carried you and brought you to myself. It's not about our covenant of obedience resulting in covenant blessing. There is one and only one who can receive the covenant blessing. That is Jesus. But through his death and resurrection, he makes a way clear for us to receive by grace what we are unable to receive by obedience. Paul will write, you are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, lest anyone should be prideful. Through the gift of adoption, not the performance of obedience, through the gift of adoption, we are his. And so in Christ, we do have a new identity. Peter will pick this up. Remember, Peter was himself an epic failure. But he saw in the death and resurrection of Jesus that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's picking up Exodus 19 right there. How are we that? Because we are in Christ. Because Jesus, the only one who could lay claim to the covenant obedience and blessing, has offered it to us by his grace. Friends, that's why it's good news. There is no burden of go and do. There is a burden of come and receive, an invitation for that. How marvelous that is. Yet Peter knew, and we know, that because we live in this time between the times, we live not only in the hope of our adoption, but we live in what I'll call the right now and the not yet. The right now and the not yet. Peter's friend, John, would write, dear friends, now we are children of God. The language is very clear there. We are, that's who we are. 
And what we will be has not yet been made known. We are something and we are yet to be more. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now in Christ we are, then like Christ we will be. We live in a tension, and we need to be honest about this, in a tension between the right now, in Christ, and the not yet. We yet wait. His work is not yet complete. That's why any other human identity or institution is never our final hope for us as believers. No nation can make that promise, no political party, no church, no denomination or tradition, no feeling or diploma or certification or trophy never are sufficient to be our final end. There is a hope of what God will do to end and we live in that promise increasingly day by day. We live in this right now and not yet. Martin Luther called it Simul justus et peccator. I use this from time to time. I want you to know this is a deep commitment among Protestants for centuries, simultaneously just and sinner. I like to talk about how all my heroes are sinners. There's not a person you can lift up as a hero who doesn't also have the impact of sin. Martin Luther himself is an example of a man sold out to the gospel and yet still a jarring sinner. We know that when Christ appears, John says, we shall be like him. And we also know that right now we are not. This is why I want to make so clear Christ and Christ crucified rather than any human expression or organization. It means we live differently, friends. It means that we are, let me give you three closing propositions. It means the church is not yet in Christ. What would it be if we lived as if the church was a gathering of sinners who have been rescued by God and have one great priest, the Lord Jesus? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. You know, I've been in ministry for many years. I've seen the best and the worst of God's people. One of the reasons I proclaim Christ and Christ crucified is because I have more stories than any of you about the bad behavior of church people. I don't put my faith in us. I don't proclaim us. I proclaim us as rescued by him, the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel. In Christ, we're a holy nation, a treasured possession, and day by day, a not yet completed group of loved people. But think of the freedom that comes from that. We begin to realize that we are rescued for obedience to the Lord. We are not rescued by our obedience. When I sin, I repent. I don't try to make up for it. Oh, I may, as part of my repentance, pursue restitution, make good for things, but it's not my burden. I'm not rescued by my obedience, even less am I rescued for myself. My life is defined by God. I would be fine if the Lord would rescue me 
so that I would be free to work hard and earn money to my full potential so I could accumulate all the little goodies of the world. That would be cool. But he has rescued me for himself, not for myself. He didn't rescue me for my own desires or for my own definition of self-actualization. He's called me, I believe by the word of God, I would say this, to live simply so that others can simply live, to live filled with his grace, generously, restfully, joyfully. In Christ, I am all those things in the world. Out of his grace, I live into that more and more because you see, we are empowered by the spirit to live out the covenant. Here at Hardawike, we like to say our calling is to invite everyone to join in the journey of being found in, formed by, and following Christ. A big step in my own journey was to understand that the Ten Commandments were not what I needed to understand and believe and do in order to be loved and accepted by God. The Ten Commandments are not a, a, a summary of what I'd better do in order to be loved. Instead, I see them as what God, the God who rescued me in Christ would do in me if I surrendered to life in Christ. For example, let's be concrete. When I'm drawn to gossip or self-serving stories about myself, you know, that story like, did I tell you about the fish that I caught? Although we do them a lot differently and more dangerously when I'm drawn to gossip, when I'm unwilling to speak the best about another person and dwell on the worst, even someone who disagrees with me, I go to the ninth commandment, Exodus 20, 16. Thou shalt not speak falsely, bear false witness. The law may convict me of sin, but it's God's grace that will empower me to obedience to pray for them to love them, to shut my mouth, to be drawn to where God may yet be at work in their life and to pray for that. The law may convict, but it's the spirit that gives life. I wanna close with a, a brief look at Johann Sebastian Bach. I'm no um, historian of music. The standing joke for Bill is that when Darwin called me and began to cast vision for serving in this position, he said, it's a, it's a service with classic music. And I immediately thought, okay, that would be Beatles, so was it the Rubber Soul era or the Abbey Road? I don't know much, but I've learned. Johann Sebastian Bach was born on March 21, 1685 in the small town of Eisenbach in what is now Germany. He was the eighth and last child of Johann Ambrosius Bach, Eisenbach's town piper. At the top of a hill overlooking their town is Wartburg Castle, where Martin Luther, after being excommunicated from the church, preached and ministered in 1521. During his time there, Luther translated the New Testament into the German language for the people of God. At the foot of that hill is St. George's Church. Luther preached there while traveling to answer the charge of heresy, again at the risk of his life. Now, 164 years later, Bach was baptized there. Luther had attended the Latin school in Eisenacht as a child, and Bach attended the same school nearly two centuries later. Almost literally from the cradle to the grave, 
Bach lived and worked in a part of the world where, as one historian put it, Luther was a great deal more compelling than gravity itself. That's the environment that Bach grew up in. And, and his list of musical compositions and accomplishments are just too long and too numerous for me to read to you. I was fascinated. He was the father of 20 children. His personal Bible and his collection of Luther's writings were well-worn and carefully underlined and notated. You can get a sense of his heart as you read through those notes. We've sung and heard his music today, almost 400 years later. You'll hear it again in the postlude. I don't know much, but I'll point this out. He very often finished his compositions with a Latin inscription, Soli Deo Gloria. We have it inscribed in all of our hymnals. Here is a man, J.S. Bach, of great ability and accomplishment. Many would say one of the greatest in Western civilization, music. We hardly know how to make sense of that in the 21st century of the United States because he, for all that accomplishment, he lived pointing to something greater than himself. How do we make sense of that? Bach understood from Luther that to live by grace alone is to live to God's glory alone. Grace frees us from the weight of our own self-actualization through accomplishment. My identity and my value don't have to be part of my resume. Instead, we're free to bear the fruit of God's grace and to live out our calling, whether that's in music or engineering or just governance or caring for the sick and infirm or establishing justice and peace. See, to live by God's grace is to live to his glory. And that grace bears fruit to his glory and to the benefit of others. That's the message of Exodus 19, not our obedience, his grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus, that you've loved us deeply and that you've extended to us a grace that calls us to respond in faith. Abba, Father. I pray that you'd give us a security that comes not from our performance, or from our best intentions, or from our denial, but that would come from what Jesus did at the cross for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move deeply in the life of every person within the sound of my voice, that they might hear the spirit of adoption, and then hear the voice of mission, that you would gift them, that they would find the place where that gift plugs in in our body and bears fruit, that the whole world would see and know the goodness of Jesus, even as we receive that this day through the ministry of a man like J.S. Bach and the hymns we've sung and the music we've heard. Fill us with hope and great praise for you. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the God and King of creation. For we pray in his name and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Let's stand and sing to that God of glory.
now receive the benediction of our God. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.